beginning with the chanting of the refuges and precepts. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Dutiyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Dutiyampi Dhammang saranam gachami Dutiyampi sangam saranam gachami Tatiyampi udang saranam gachami Tatiyampi dhammang saranam gachami Tatiyampi sangam saranam gachami Panati pata veramini sikapadam samadhyami Adinadana veramini sikapadam samadhyami Abrahmacharya Veramani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Musawada Veramani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Sura Maria Majapama Dattana Veramani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Vikala Bojana Veramini Sikapadang Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Veramini Sikapadang Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramini Sikapadang Samadhyami Idame Silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo
So I realized that if there's some of you who keep track of days, you might be expecting Joseph to be sitting here tonight. <laughs> Just noting expectation. <laughs> and not to worry, he will return. <laughs> So the name of tonight's talk is Living a Life of Dharma Inquiry. In my last talk, I mentioned that I had had a very strong fear of getting to my deathbed and looking back on my life and having the sense that I'd never really lived, that I'd spent my time dreaming my life away. It has been in my life a very real fear, a fear that I think emerged in my youth and has come to me in different ways. It seems to have, in some way, contributed to what seems to be my life koan. And that is this very aspect of how one lives a life of Dharma inquiry. How one lives bringing truth to the center of one's life. How one does that without driving oneself crazy. (laughs) I must be perfect. I must get it right. (laughs) Of not you know, burning myself into the ground through striving, which, in fact, I did do. At one point in my practice in Burma, I was in a pretty collapsed state from holding rigidly to a view of practice, a view of what that life might look like. And it didn't meet what was happening. So it was, in many ways, a very brutal experience, Um, but there was a lot of learning from it. And sometimes we drive ourselves in the ground, and that's how we learn. I realized I can be pretty thick-headed at times, you know, can be pretty strongly attached to my ideas. But at least aging, maybe, we get a little wiser. (laughs) But I have... In more recent years, and I think I did throughout my life, I just didn't have the eyes to see, because I really do have a sense that we get our lessons, we get what we need to wake up. But I did meet a couple of people that, to me, really have a posture in life of living from this place of Dharma inquiry. You know, in my life, I've met some beings that seem very realized, you know, being in their presence, that, you know, you can feel the compassion, you can feel the loving kindness, you, the, the wisdom is evident. And this is not to say that these two people didn't have these qualities, but that they also, to me, had a stance. It was just because of the way I spent time with them that I could get more of a felt sense of what it is like to live where one is always looking, listening, looking to truth, where one is engaged with life 
but with an open mind. I'd just like to briefly mention these two people because they really did have an impact on me. The first was a nun named Da Inyeti, or Da Anti, as uh, Da Lei, as she was often called. She was the abbess of the nunnery that I went to live in for a period of time when I had temporarily ordained as a nun. And it was in Sagaing Hills. I think I may, if I get to it, speak a little bit more about that later. But right now the focus is on her because she was so impactful. You know, I had um, been practicing with Burmese teachers for a number of years, but it had all been male monastics. And so this was my first time of really being immersed in a world with other women, young girls. And she was just a remarkable role model for a woman in a position of authority. Um, And because she didn't speak English, it's not like I have a lot of stories to tell about what she said because, well, she did speak a little bit of English, but it was only enough, so we constantly miscommunicated. So, (laughs) but it was her presence that spoke to me. She was so alive. She was a tiny woman, but just a fireball of energy. And I had the good fortune of being able to walk through Sagain Hills, which in, in itself is an exquisitely beautiful place. It was a place that earlier um, I had been to. And when I was there, I just really found the aspiration welling up to go back there and practice. And there I was finding myself as a nun. And um, just because they didn't quite know what to do with me in the nunnery. (laughs) Because, you know, I couldn't, I wanted to work with them, but uh, they didn't want me to work with them. I had a, you know, just a different status because I was a foreign nun. And they just wanted to respect that. But it really um, led to an unusual lifestyle. And so, one, I couldn't work with them. If, In fact, if I tried to work with the people cutting vegetables, or if I was even seen sitting with them, um, Dole would come up and smell my fingers to see if I'd been cutting garlic. <laughs> but um, one, one of the things that we did was we went out together a lot. You know, sometimes it was by car. And if we went in the car, she would give me her seat, which was in the front seat. You know, that was just the way that she responded, you know, her response to life was this sense of just complete generosity. I was quite sure that if I had needed a robe, she would have taken the one off her back for me. You know, her generosity was so evident. And she was so playful. Um, When we went places, I could see people had a lot of reverence for her, a lot of respect, but she had this lightheartedness in that people were often laughing with her. And then we would, you know, walk into um, some pagoda, you know, a place of reverence, and she'd be touching everything, feeling it. And, you know, me, I'm like, "Mm -hmm," not wanting to do anything wrong, but she was just in the thick of it. You know, just this sense of vitality and aliveness with it. And then even though she couldn't speak English, she was always trying to teach me in some way. 
um, as we would walk through these hills, you know, that were just magically beautiful. And this was the romantic part of the time. I mean, the rest of it was not so romantic. But as we would walk through the hills, she would teach me a chant, and we would just walk through chanting together. And then, you know, in the monastery or the nunnery that I was at, they taught 32 parts of the body as their meditation. And so, you know, she would just be pointing to the different parts of the body. You know, her desire to, to share was so strong. And so it was really from her just this posture of presence, openness, vitality, an engagement with life, but at the same time, it was radiated through this sense of stillness. So it wasn't a feeling of distancing, but a real connection and not not reactive, you know, not the kind of reactivity that I, in my life, have so often experienced. And yet, you know, there was, I didn't have the sense that she thought she was done. You know, that she looked like, to me, she was continuing to practice. And she worked from morning to night. And, you know, the morning began with practice and ended with more formal practice. And it was, you know, it it was just, it felt like everything was being brought into the context of practice. The other person who had a strong effect on me uh, was Sayadaw Utejaneya whom I think we have referred to some throughout the course and have given different teachings that he's passed on to us. Um, Sayada Utejaniya was a lay person in his life before being a monk, which I think most people are born lay people. But he, he <laughs> Anyhow, he spent time. He actually got married, <laughs> had a child. He was a shopkeeper. Um, and practiced hard in his life. You know, he didn't let the fact that uh, he had a wife to take care of, a child, he didn't let that stop him in his practice. He didn't let the conditions of life say, sorry, I can't have this life of Dharma inquiry. Maybe I can go on a weekend retreat this year, and we'll let that be enough. He practiced in his shop. He practiced with seeing meditation a lot. But again, you know, there's the story of his life. But from him, too, there was, you know, it was a vibrational (laughs) transmission of a mind that is always looking. And I found that, you know, in my interviews with him, that, you know, there was different ways I could see it. You know, one day I asked him a question and he responded. And, you know, his response was great. I took it in. I left. I came back four days later and he said, you know, the last time I saw you, you asked me this question. And, and after you left, I just went and I sat and I looked at it in my own experience. And so I just want to expand my answer. You know, and it, it really came out, you know, of not a pat answer that he was giving, but just what happened when he looked in that moment into his mind. And then, you know, it could also happen that he would give you an answer to a question, and then, 
you might say something and then he'd just reevaluate it all and it would be like, oh, no, let's, you know, we go in a different direction. But it was just that openness, that sense of inquiry, and that willingness to do it in all circumstances of life. And, you know, I, it's my sincere hope that your training in being here is not just to be calm, to be peaceful, but to really find the tools, a practice that will sustain you in your life, that will be helpful in the midst of chaos when, or when things get difficult. Only recently I spoke to a woman who she's been coming for years and practicing here. And she's meeting challenges on the physical level. No, really quite strong challenges. But when I talked to her, I could see that all of the practice she had done was helping her. And that didn't mean that she was just focusing on her breath. That mean, meant that she was opening up to what a wise response was in this moment and how she could use these conditions as path, as the means to awakening. And that's what our training here is for. And that's where I really encourage you to watch any fixed ideas you have of what practice should look like, how we can rigidly fall into thinking what it is. You know, this idea that we sit, we walk. We sit, we walk. And sometimes in practice we do, because that's the wise response. But at other times, other things are happening. And that's where we see if our training in sitting and walking was just about having another meditative experience or was really helping us to find the tools, find the way to stay connected, to look more deeply, to not just be caught on a superficial level, on a conceptual level, but a way of meeting this moment with all the wisdom that there is accessible. Going back to this aspect of living a life of Dharma inquiry, this inquiry does need to be supported by skillful means. It needs to be supported by the understanding of what helps us to connect. We 
through our time here are really learning to stabilize awareness, to have more and more moments where there is recognition of what's happening in this body and mind. This in itself has a huge impact. It really helps us to see more deeply what our motivations are, what's moving us, where reactivity is still present, how the mind is relating to experience. When the attention is stable, we can see Things can be recognized. It's not such a mystery. Through this, we learn to live honoring the level of the relative, the level of convention. We learn about cause and effect, karma. We learn how our actions have consequences. And as our practice deepens, this recognition of the conventional level, we also begin to see into the level of the absolute. We begin to see into the nature of reality. And may have moments because of the capacity to know these two levels where we do not feel so bound, burdened by this mind and body. Moments where we discover the capacity to love fully, knowing there is nothing to hang on to, and yet loving anyways. Because this is wisdom. We live in the world as if everything matters. We take care and respect, and at the same time, we let go. And yet, we will find that we still over and over again get caught in identifying, reacting. And if we have this sense of Dharma inquiry, sense of investigation, this doesn't become a personal failing, a way of saying we're not good enough, that we can't do it. It just gives us 
something else to explore, to know, to make friends with. I'd like to share a poem named uh, called Lost. It's from a Native American elder. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger and must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying here, No two trees are the same to the raven. No two branches are the same to the wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. I found this last line to be so potent, having seen my own tendency to try to find, to try to get, and to hear this poem that points towards such a state of receptivity of being, allowing, that is right here, right now. It needs an open mind, a mind not filled with ideas and beliefs and concepts. Needing to recognize these ideas, beliefs, concepts that bind us, that become our prison, and instead moving, or it's so funny, even saying the word moving, there is like there's no language. And I think being is the word that comes closest. Probably some of you are like me and have noticed that the being is easier when the conditions are pleasant, (laughs) when we like it. The being when it's reactive, when it's a challenge, when it hurts. The touching this, just knowing it, requires a level of trust, a deep level of trust. It's not a blind trust. 
it's a trust that I, you know, from listening to you each day, I know that you're getting in touch with where you can really trust in the power of mindfulness, where awareness becomes a refuge. It is what supports. It is is like a life jacket, in a sense, that we don't get lost in a way that brings confusion that enhances bewilderment. If we don't if we don't have trust as we're sitting here, we're probably looking for specific results, things to be a certain way. You know, it's like going into do an experiment in the lab, but already having decided how that experiment will come out. And this doesn't lead to an openness. It doesn't lead to direct experience. We really need to have that capacity to sit with the don't-know mind or beginner's mind. Trust is really what enables us to move into unknown territory or else we're just caught in trying to make ourselves more secure, feel more safe. I'd like to share a teaching from a teacher named Hamid Almas. He lives on the West Coast, and he really brings together a synthesis of Eastern philosophy and Western psychology. And this is what he says about trust. We do not trust that if we relax, we will have the capacities, we will have the intelligence, we will have the strength, and we will have the compassion that we need to deal with our lives. We don't trust that reality, as it is, is fundamentally fine and will work for us and support us without any interference on our part. Basic trust is learning that life is manageable, is workable, that we can relax into it and just let it be. It is that trust that the universe itself supports us and that we have the inner resources to deal with whatever life presents us. Basic trust means trusting enough to let your mind stop, to be silent within. Trust to let yourself be silent within. Knowing this is if there's something you need to know, the knowing will come. It means trusting that if you need to do something, you will be able to do it. It means accepting and trusting the silence, the stillness, the beingness. If we don't trust, we can't let our minds be silent and we can't let ourselves be still. Have you seen that in your own mind? Where in a moment where there's silence, 
is too much. It's a recoiling, a pulling away. And that's okay, don't judge that. Because that's what the Dharma inquiry comes into. But this quality of trust, we need to look in our own experience and really get a sense of where that trust comes in, where that softening happens, where that acceptance happens. I had an exercise I used to do in my life. This was after I'd been sick for a number of years, and I discovered that it was so healing to every day for just one moment allow my heart to open. And at that time, I lived in a much different climate. (laughs) I lived in Australia, and I lived in a subtropical area of Australia. And there was a beach down just below where I lived, and I could swim every day. Not all year long, but a lot of the year, the water was warm. And some days it was calm. And so I would go out into the ocean, and I would lay on my back, and I would just lay there and let myself feel held, letting the ocean hold me. It got me in contact with that sense of trust. In our lives, it's letting the Dhamma hold us, not feeling like we have to do it all. So exploring here, what helps that trust to strengthen? What, where is your confidence growing? My experience has certainly taken me to mindfulness, awareness. What becomes reliable? I had a lesson in seeing this that came from my time of being a nun in Burma. I actually had gone to Burma after I'd read the book Great Disciples of the Buddha. And I was just really struck by people's diligence, you know, the, just their capacity to really live this life of Dharma inquiry. And the question had come up in my mind, am I doing enough? And so I wanted to go to Burma to you know, not go and practice in intensive retreat, because I'd done that a number of times before, but I just wanted to go and live as a nun amongst nuns and to just see what their life was like, to see what else I might be able to bring into my own life as a layperson. And just pausing here to say, because I realized my two examples before were monastics, 
And this talk is not in any way meant to say if you're living a life of Dharma inquiry, you shall ordain. Um, it's really, you know, that's not what it's pointing to. It's how we live our lives. Um, but this was to see, you know, what do they do in their life that I could bring back to my life? And so, you know, I'd gone to Burma. I had ordained with my teacher, Chamye Sayada, or Sayada Janaka, And uh, it had been a very profound experience, an experience where I did have a sense of the inner and outer world being in alignment. Um, there was a sense of grace in ordaining. But very shortly after that, the honeymoon was over. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long. And then the lessons came hard and fast. Um, I found, you know, living in robes just, it was such a strong mirror. You know, it just intensified, you know, what my motivations were, what my reactions were. Uh, and you know, very soon after I ordained, I traveled up to this area, Sagain Hills, uh, and I first went with a friend who is a, a nun and a Burmese woman, so they could translate for me because I was going to an area where people didn't speak English. Um, I went to the place where my teacher had sent me, and it, the conditions were just very, very difficult, and in the end decided not to stay there but went to another nunnery where the conditions were a little bit better. Uh, but there, you know, there was just all kinds of challenges that emerged. Uh, you know, language barrier, and sense of intense loneliness, because I was surrounded by people who were talking, and I was just that sense of isolation, not being a part of. You know, I had problems with actually just receiving too much food and not knowing what to do with it, and then that attracting bugs, and it was um, uh, it was a challenge. Uh, you know, it all became workable, but there was challenges. A challenge with the insects that they were biting me so severely that actually they bit my bottom so bad I couldn't sit on down on it. And then you know, bugs in my bed, and um, you know, it was living by the precepts. What do I do? I, you know, I just felt challenged on so many levels, and there wasn't a strong sense of grace. You know, that I didn't feel like I was gracefully handling this. <laughs> it was quite painful, a lot of it. And so there came the time when I left, and I was sitting at the airport in Yangon. Um, and I was sitting there reflecting on my time. And it wasn't like sitting there going, oh, that was great. Oh, that was a good insight. I was sitting there scratching my head and saying, what was that about? (laughs) And then it was very unusual because at this time in Burma, the modern day world had not caught up in the same way it has now. The airport had recently been redone and there was a video screen. That was totally, you know, from where I'd been, where in Sagain Hills, there's monastics everywhere, temples, um, pagodas, just the sense that you could run into the Buddha himself there. And then there, here I am in this airport, this video screen. And then all of a sudden, there comes a song on, it was by Sarah McLaughlin. And I didn't hear the line right, but I heard it 
I heard it right, but not the way it was. And the line was, living in a mystery. And when I heard that line, it was like a bubble popped. That this mind had been trying so hard to figure things out, to put things in their proper place. And in that moment was the sense, I didn't have to do that. I could simply relax and trust. And from that place, the Dhamma reveals itself. But it is really hard to tell that to the frightened mind. No, it's... I think fear is something we hang out with a lot. If you can, just touch it with kindness, with that refuge of awareness, to know it's just fear. And, you know, these fears are so often based on ideas, what it will be like if we really let go. An idea its not truth, not wisdom. blessings of walking this path. Today, I kept having this image in my mind, and it was just of having my head to the floor, just bowing, that sense of surrender. So the Tibetans say the preciousness of this human birth. But I think just sitting here right now, it's just such an honor to have a mind and body to be able to do this exploration. My notes are making no sense to me. (laughs) I've never had a relationship with words. (laughs) When I first started teaching, people kept saying to me, "Um, is English your second language? (laughs) My response was, yes, silence is my first.
live it, be it, open to it, trust it, inquire. You can do it. That's what the Buddha said. (laughs) He said, if it was not possible, I would not ask you. I know many times I've thought it's not possible. And that's where, you know, sometimes the taking of refuge, maybe we feel really shaky with our mindfulness, um, you know, <laughs> a mindfulness, moment of mindfulness every two days. It doesn't seem like a lot. <laughs> but, you know, just knowing all the beings that have walked this path before us, all those that have awakened, they were just like us. And that's where I love to read the stories of awakened beings. Because you see, they came from all different kinds of circumstances. And so many horrendous ones. I was actually today read a story that I didn't want to tell you. (laughs) Because it comes from the uh, Japanese lineage. And somewhere... It, it was just like, whoa. I mean, it, it's where my mind says, oh, can you really learn anywhere? It was this woman was a prostitute, and a monk came along and encouraged her to practice with mindfulness, to do it where she was. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's how we apply, how we look, what the attitude is. And, you know, we have to look at the mundane you know, because we're not going to have a life that is the charmed existence where, you know, we have the perfect conditions. People living in monasteries, they have to do the menial jobs. You know, that, that the repetitiveness, that's what life brings, is these, these tasks that need doing over and over again. And this is where we practice. You know, as you're here practicing, your yogi job or whatever, you know, even just the in, out, yeah, it's repetitive. But the boredom comes not from the experience, but from the quality of attention. And we really begin to see this. You know, we see that when there's mindfulness, that things do become more vibrant, more alive, more clear. Not that we can practice to get that, but that that can happen. And that's because of the quality of attention. And bringing this to everything, everything, to the boredom. A boredom, we go nuts with it. It's so unpleasant, so painful. But look, what's happening? You know, here through this time, Learning to recognize what the mind is doing. Watch the mind. Pay attention. This is where the learning is. This is where wisdom is. Living in a wholehearted way that at times seems half-hearted might be what's possible. But when we do this, the best we can, 
and let that be enough. It leads to a sense of care and respect in how we live our lives. It lives to leads to a sense of devotion. It's really bringing that devotion to this moment, to truth unfolding, life unfolding. Our time here really nourishes any aspiration to awaken. And maybe it's not clear exactly what our motivation is, but it certainly clarifies itself as we practice because we see the value we understand for ourselves through these little moments of seeing clearly, moment of not clinging, a moment of letting be. This is a teaching from Sayada Ujodaka from Burma. A fragmentary or specialized approach to life will not work. One needs one needs our all-around understanding. In the body, every part is related to every other part. So it is in life. Every aspect of your life is related to every other aspect of life. The economics, sexual, emotional, intellectual, social, and spiritual aspects of your life are all related. You cannot keep them separate. If you try to keep them separate, your life will be unfulfilling and unharmonious. There will be conflict, schism, paralysis. Every aspect we bring it to our practice, our relationships, sexuality, our rage, frustration, the way we live, what we do, what we say. Bringing this quality of devotion, care, respect. If we do this, Maybe, I haven't died yet, maybe when we die, <laughs> our hearts will be at peace. There's a sense of rising up to the challenge. Just to move out of living in a habituated way, living 
driven by habits. Sense of coming out of the fog of delusion. Moments of clarity. I remember that from one of my, my first retreat with Sayada Upandita, where I felt just a mess most of the retreat. And then there would just be a moment where there was just seeing, hearing, touching, tasting. It was like a clear bell stepping into the clearing from a jungle. These moments bring trust, bring confidence, bring faith. And this gives us the energy to go forward, to look, and to live a life of Dharma inquiry. Let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know a heart that is unbound. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.